Good to see everybody. We do have an empty corner. The roof is caving in. We didn't want anybody under that. It seemed prudent. So we have a, sort of a uniquely American holiday this week, Halloween. And uh, for many people, it's a time of great fun. And, uh, and that's a good thing. Uh, but there are people for whom this is the, a religious holiday for many uh, pagans uh, who are going to pray against us and uh, worship the enemy. We just sang some songs about binding the strong man, about binding Satan, about defeating him with just a word of Christ. And this wasn't planned, but we are coming to one of those passages today. And I thought it was appropriate that this week, of all weeks, we get to a passage that's talking about, uh, in part, Jesus overcoming Satan. And so as you go into this holiday, um, just use a lot of discernment and pray when you need to and pray that Jesus would continue to overcome the forces of evil uh, in this world. And that would be a good thing. So turn with me now to Mark chapter 3. It's the end of this chapter. We're going to read verses 20 through 35. And listen carefully, as always, this is God's word. Then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. As always, we need it. We need to know it. We need to understand it. Thank you for giving it to us and for making us your people. You've brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. Lord, many are the words of men we've heard in the week now behind us. 
but before us this morning is the living and errant word of Almighty God. So we pray that you would give us your spirit, that your words may command our loyalty and have our attention and grip our hearts and nourish our souls and lead us to faith and repentance as we walk with our Savior. Thank you that today we're learning once again from Mark, a follower of Jesus as he shows us the life of Christ. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through the gospel of Mark this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen. I became a Christian as a sophomore in high school, two or three years ago. Another guy in my grade came to Christ at the same time, and we became best friends. And we remained that way up until his untimely death 18 years ago. He was one of those guys you could go a long time without seeing, and when you finally got together, it was like you'd never been apart. His name was Mark, and he was great fun, and I enjoyed our time together, and I'd wish we'd had a lot more. About six months after becoming Christians... Mark and I went on a week-long summer camp that our church youth group put on. We went to the old Barrington College, which has since merged with Gordon College, but at the time was in Barrington, Rhode Island. And since Mark and I had come to Christ at about the same time, we were asked to share our testimony with the whole group, which consisted of several hundred high school students from all over the Boston area. I have no idea what I said. I doubt anyone else does either. But I vividly remember what Mark said. He was really attracted to the joy the other Christians had, our small group leader in particular. He loved that this guy was more excited, more joyous, sang louder, was the first to sign up for any activity, and was a great leader. And he wanted to sign up too. And there's the rub. See, Mark was drawn to Christianity by a guy who was a great leader but he wasn't drawn to Christ. And I've never forgotten that because to some degree it explained what happened the next year. The next year, as our youth group geared up again, I called Mark and asked if he needed a ride to the first meeting. It was important because we lived in the suburbs and our youth group was at Park Street Church in Boston, right downtown on the Boston Common. And we would drive to the parking lot and take the green line into the city. The metro system in Boston is run by the MBTA, the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, more commonly known as the T. And so I asked Mark if he needed a ride, and he didn't answer. And there was a long silence. And finally I was like, Mark, are you there? And he replied, yeah, I'm here. Man, I don't think I'm going. In fact, I don't think I'm going anymore. It was fun, but... It's just not my thing. Have a good time. And I was beside myself. I was stunned. I argued. I pleaded. I begged, but he wouldn't budge. Just not going to do the church thing anymore. So I called our small group leader and some of the other youth group leaders and told them Mark was dropping out. I couldn't believe it. And most of them handled it great. They met with Mark, and they prayed with Mark, and they loved Mark. But one guy didn't handle it very well. He told Mark that by leaving the church and leaving the youth group, he was leaving Christ, 
And that was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And he was damning himself to hell. And Mark simply said, I'm sorry. And he hung up. And except for the occasional wedding or funeral, he never went back to church again. We remained friends. I went to college and he went to the Air Force. And then he went to college and I went to the Army. We both got married and we both had kids. Eventually I went to seminary and he went to grad school. We both got master's degrees and we both got doctorates. And he remained my best friend right up until the day he died. And I still miss him. And occasionally, usually late at night over a beer, we get talking about high school. And once in a very great while, we talk about what happened. And Mark would talk some about faith and what it meant to live that out. And he got involved with a faith-based Christian uh, sort of relief effort. Um, And he did that, and I took hope in that. But Mark never forgot what that one guy said to him that fall day so many Septembers ago. And he would say something to the effect of, you know, some people think it's too late for me. And I would say it's never too late. Not for you, not for anybody. That deadly phrase, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is found in our text today. And it contains a great truth, but when misused or even misunderstood, it becomes a great weapon with devastating consequences. So don't use it lightly. Jesus didn't use it lightly. In fact, he only used it once, recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he used it to challenge people, not to condemn them. And he used it when they attributed the work of God to Satan. The ESV study Bible says this is done through, quote, through the flagrant, willful, and persistent rejection of God and his commands. This sin is committed only by unbelievers who deliberately and unchangeably reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit in calling them to salvation. It's done by people with hardened hearts, who don't care about God, who don't care about salvation, who don't care about their own eternal destiny. It's given as a warning and it's given as a challenge, but never as a weapon. And to understand that, we have to turn to our text today, Mark 3. First of all, most commentators, most preachers divide this passage into two chapters or two sermons or two lessons. I'm not persuaded that's the best way to handle it. Primarily, this is part of the same teaching moment where Jesus is answering both the scribes and the crowd. So let's turn to Mark 3, our text. And the first thing we notice, this text is about unbelief. Unbelief, and we'll start with the argument of unbelief. That should be the first blank there in your outline, the argument of unbelief, starting at verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Now we've been working our way through Mark's gospel for eight Sundays now, and we're at the end of the third chapter, and we come to a pair of connected passages that teach us about Jesus' family. 
We're introduced to his family in verses 20 and 21. They've heard about the commotion surrounding Jesus' ministry in Capernaum, and they've gotten concerned that Jesus has finally lost it. He's had some sort of episode, some sort of breakdown, something like that. And so they make the journey uh, down to Capernaum from Nazareth to put a stop to all this nonsense. It's sort of an intervention on their part. And the text says they're there to seize Jesus and bring him home. And then a delegation arrives from Jerusalem. Scribes sent from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus and to bring charges against him. And they're going to accuse him of great sin. So there's two things going on at the same time. His family is coming for him because they think there's something wrong with him. They think he's insane. They say he's out of his mind. The second group, the scribes, doesn't think he's crazy. They think he's evil. They accuse him of being in league with the devil. Look at verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. That name, Beelzebul, literally means Lord of the Flies. And it's where the name of the famous book by William Golding comes from. If you were ever forced to read that book in school, you realize that it's basically about the evil that lives inside all of us. Um, and it, the name of the book comes from this passage. Now, the scribes can't deny that Jesus has power over sickness and power to cast out demons because they've seen it with their own eyes. But they're in a pickle because Jesus is using that power over sickness and over demons to make a point in claiming to be God. He claims he has the power to forgive sins, and he backs that claim up by healing the sick and casting out demons. So they can't deny that he has the power. But they refuse to believe he's God, so they offer an alternate explanation. He's not casting out demons because he's God. He's casting out demons because he has a demon. Not only that, he's casting out demons because he's possessed by the prince of demons. In other words, Satan. So one group, his family, thinks he's a lunatic. The other group, the scribes, think he's a liar. And if that sounds familiar to you, it should. Many of you know it from the famous quote by C.S. Lewis. It appears in two of his books, The Case for Christianity and Mere Christianity. And it's commonly known as the trilemma, like a dilemma, but the trilemma. It goes as follows. This is C.S. Lewis. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we mustn't say. A man who is merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, 
I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. That's the trilemma. Now, the problem with the trilemma is that unbelievers don't like it. They insist on a fourth option, the very option that C.S. Lewis is ruling out, that Jesus is a wonderful teacher of love and peace. And even though that option has essentially been disproved hundreds of times over hundreds of years, people still insist on it. Why? Well, because they hate the trilemma. They hate the idea that Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or the Lord he claimed to be because many people today, especially the sophisticated elite of the metro D.C. area, don't want to concede that Jesus is the unique son of God that we have to build our lives around. However, Jesus immediately challenges the critics, both then and now. Look at how he responds to them, starting in verse 23, by unmasking the foolishness of unbelief. The foolishness of unbelief. The scribes have made their argument, and now Jesus shows them how utterly irrational those arguments are. The accusation the accusation is that he's evil and that by means of a demonic power, he's doing miraculous things. And so Jesus tells some short parables, starting at verse 23. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So it's not a complicated point that Jesus is making. Even the scribes have to admit Jesus is casting out demons, and so they have to have an explanation. They're saying that Jesus is casting out demons by means of demonic power. But Jesus said if that's the case, then Satan is undermining his own kingdom and that kingdom will implode. But it's not imploding, is it? In fact, it's mounting a vigorous defense against the ministry of Jesus at every opportunity. It's not rational to suggest that Satan is behind the work of Christ. So you see what Jesus is doing. He's doing what Francis Schaeffer would later call taking the roof off. And you would use the metaphor of a house. And you take the roof off, and then you can see what's really going on inside. You expose the inner logic of other people's arguments and help them understand that it just doesn't work. That their argument lacks coherence. It doesn't make sense of the facts. But that's what unbelief leads us to. It leads us to irrationality and foolishness. And we'll go to great lengths and do all sorts of mental gymnastics simply to avoid the clear conclusions to which the evidence points us. We'll embrace as credible any argument, however implausible, if it allows us to remain in rebellion against God. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans says we exchange the truth of God for a lie. That's what the scribes are doing here. They've adopted what is essentially a ridiculous position. 
it doesn't make sense. And yet unbelief would rather embrace foolishness than bend the knee to Christ the King. Before we move on, notice, however, that having unmasked the irrationality of their unbelief, Jesus doesn't leave it there. He gives his own alternate explanation for what's going on. Verse 27, no one enters a strong man's house and plunders his goods unless he first finds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. In Jesus' metaphor here, Satan is the strong man. His goods are the people held under his dominion and sway, his power, his influence, and Jesus plunders his goods. That is, he delivers people. He sets them free from satanic power and bondage because Jesus is stronger than the strong man. It's not that Satan's kingdom is imploding because it's internally divided. That's not what's going on. No, Jesus is conducting spiritual warfare He's in direct conflict with the kingdom of Satan, and he's winning the battle. He's binding the strong man and setting the prisoner free. And after all, he said that that's exactly what he came to do. Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus' words have to be understood in light of the fact that some months before, he'd spent 40 days in the wilderness while he was, where he was tempted by the devil, and Jesus defeated Satan at that time by not giving in to temptation. And having defeated Satan in the wilderness, he moved on to Capernaum, where the darkness of Satan's kingdom was being pushed back even more. He's come, as we read in Colossians 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus Christ is the only savior of sinners before whom we must all come and bow and who can set our hearts free. He's neither lunatic nor liar, he is Lord, and he can give you the freedom for which your heart longs. He's come to set the captives free. Real freedom is not the path of rebellion, but the path of surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He came to set you free, and as we just sang, and if he sets you free, oh, you'll be free indeed. That's why he came. He came to free you from sin and Satan. But the argument of unbelief and the irrationality of that argument can lead to something much, much worse. And so Jesus confronts the danger of unbelief. The danger of unbelief. And here we come to our controversial verses. And you'll see there's an awful lot at stake here. Jesus has a solemn warning. Look at verses 28 to 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So before he gets to the solemn warning, there's a marvelous promise. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. We should pause there for a moment and just let that sink in. 
It's not just freedom Jesus came to bring, but forgiveness. In fact, the character and nature of the freedom he gives is freedom from sin's condemning power. He can make your conscience clean. I know people doubt that. Dave, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've said. You don't know how I've lived. That's true. I don't, but Jesus does. And he says, all sins will be forgiven and whatever blasphemies we utter. Whatever life you live, there is forgiveness for you in Christ. So come and trust in Christ. He will set you free and make you clean. And in the context of this extraordinary promise comes the warning. Verse 29. There is a sin that puts us beyond the possibility of pardon. It says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. A couple of things to understand about that warning. First, Jesus doesn't say that the scribes have committed it, but he's warning them that they're close to the edge. And yet he's warning us too in case we find ourselves in the same danger. Secondly, he doesn't simply mean saying bad things about the Holy Spirit. It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Sounds blasphemous. It's a dreadful sin. But that's not what he means by the unforgivable sin. And Mark actually helps us to understand. He gives us a clue to the real meaning of this verse in verse 30. For they were saying he has an evil spirit or an unclean spirit. The tense there is important. They were saying it's a sustained pattern. See, what Jesus means when he warns about the unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is a settled disposition of the heart where we consistently ascribe to Satan the work of the Holy Spirit in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's warning us that it's possible to become so hardened in our opposition to Christ, so hostile to the gospel, that we come to see evil as good and good as evil. It's possible to become so close to the offer of mercy that God himself is making to us. So close to the offer of freedom and forgiveness in Jesus Christ that we feel nothing but animosity towards his love held out to you in his son. We only meet the gospel with disdain and hatred. And Jesus is saying in that day, we are perilously close to crossing the line into a place where our hearts are permanently hardened, where we no longer feel the tug and pull of God's grace. We'll happily reject it and head into a lost eternity. People who've committed this sin go to hell uncaringly, sneering at the gospel, hostile to Christ. The unpardonable sin is knowingly, willingly, persistently attributed to Satan the works of God done through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a sin of full knowledge. It's an ongoing disposition of the heart that resists the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's a verbal act that attributes the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. It's a willful rejection of God's grace in Jesus. It's rooted in unbelief. It's a sin a Christian cannot commit. And it's a sin who's not committed by one. It's a, it's a sin It's not committed by one who is even concerned that he may have committed it. Jesus' words here are designed to warn the scribes who are denouncing him, lest that be their fate. And they're meant to warn us too. 
If you've been mocking Jesus, explaining him away, minimizing his message, keeping him at arm's length, avoiding his claims, Jesus is warning you too, lest your heart be hardened and your destiny sealed beyond all hope of recovery. It's meant to unsettle us and to drive us to the only safe refuge, the only safe harbor to the eternal security found exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you hear his warning, as the alarm sounds, he's inviting you to come to him for safety, for freedom, for forgiveness. Jesus is not possessed by Satan. He's not dividing Satan's house. He came to conquer Satan's house. He came to take the captives away from Satan. He came to rescue the children of God. Jesus is able to bind Satan and deliver the children of God because he's the Lord. He's able, as Hebrews 2 says, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through uh, fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's a bold statement of who Jesus is, that he is Lord, and he's come to bind the strong man. He's come to bind Satan, and he's going to plunder his house and free those who are captive to sin and Satan. But Mark hasn't forgotten where this story started, with Jesus' family. And his family is a house divided. It's divided because they struggle with believing. And so to the scribes and to his family and to the crowds, he gives an answer to unbelief. An answer, starting at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. There's another problem here. And let me quickly address it by asking a question. This question is for the moms here. How many moms are here this morning? Raise your hand. All the moms, raise your hand. Okay. So this question is for you. Moms, have you ever wondered what it would be like to have Jesus for a son? I mean, at first thought, it would seem wonderful. Just think, a child, a son, no less, who doesn't misbehave. He never lies to you. He does all his chores. You never have to tell him to clean his room. He doesn't get in any trouble. What more do you want? On the other hand, the glimpses that we do get make you think that maybe having... Such a son wouldn't be all that easy. I mean, there's the time he disappears in Jerusalem for three days. His folks look for him frantically. They find him in the temple talking with the rabbis. And Luke relays the conversation between mother and son, Luke 2. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now that would have satisfied you moms, right? <laughs> oh yes, silly me. Well, you ready to go home? Somehow, I don't think so. Then there's the time Mary attends a wedding and finds Jesus there with his disciples. And apparently she's aware of her son's 
power. So when the host embarrassingly runs out of wine, she refers the problem to him. And Jesus responds to his mother this way, John 2, and Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now I'm trying to imagine what would have happened if I had ever answered my mom by saying, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Just a guess, but I don't think that would have ended well for me. Now, I don't think Jesus is being rude to his mom. And they did speak somewhat differently 2,000 years ago. And he's not a child anymore. He'd already begun his ministry as the Messiah. But he makes it clear he didn't appreciate the request. And Mary, as a good mother will sometimes do, ignores him and orders the servants to follow his instructions. But the story shows that as obedient as Jesus might be as a son, he had no qualms about exerting his authority. It may be a joy to raise a good son. I'm guessing it's a challenge to raise a divine one. And the reason is not that he may do something wrong, but precisely because he'll always do the right thing. And even moms, most of you, I hope, will agree that you don't always do the right thing or think the right thoughts. And so what will inevitably result? Well, we'll call it a misunderstanding. And here Jesus uses one of these misunderstandings to give us greater understanding. His family is concerned about his welfare, evidently worried that his ministry is too stressful. The text says there's no time to eat. Uh, previous text has said he can't find any time to rest. And there's truth to all of that. And they've walked from Nazareth to Capernaum, about 25 miles. And they finally arrive, and just as they've been hearing, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd in his home. And for whatever reason, they don't go in themselves. <coughs> they send someone in to let Jesus know they're waiting outside. And that's it. We don't hear from him again for the rest of the gospel. And I make this point simply to remind us that Mark's interest is not always what our interest would be. We want to know what happened. Did Jesus go out to see his family? We don't know. I think he probably did because elsewhere he speaks of the importance of showing honor to your parents. But Mark doesn't tell us. Maybe he didn't know. His point, though, including this story, is not to give us a story about Jesus' family, but to teach us about our relationship with Christ. And what's happening is that Jesus is acknowledging that whatever claims <coughs> excuse me, his earthly family has on him, God has a higher claim. And he's not prepared to abandon the work entrusted to him by God because of pressure from his family. You might say he's not going to make obedience to the fifth commandment an excuse for disobeying the first commandment. He won't make family life into such an idol that obedience to God might be set aside to pursue it. See, Jesus is going to call us to the same kind of radical obedience in the next chapter, but he won't call us to a radical obedience without first engaging in it himself. He won't call us to bear any cost that he doesn't bear first. 
And Jesus is facing the costly implications of putting the claims of God first in his life. I don't think Jesus is rejecting his family. He's not being a rebellious son. He's not rejecting his earthly family. He's making a statement about which family takes priority. He calls us to do the will of God, verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And bearing the cost of following Christ has marvelous compensations. He's saying when the will of God comes first, when trusting me and following me and obeying me becomes your priority, then we become family. Family, you become my brothers and sisters and mother. It's not all cost. There are glorious compensations. There's great gain in following Jesus. And when you begin to follow him, your obedience displays the mark of the family to which you've come to belong. Tim Keller relates our text to the parable of the prodigal son. He says, Jesus is the true elder brother. He willingly brings us into the father's family at his expense. He died for us. He was plundered for us. We sit at the father's table dressed in Jesus' clothes with his ring on our finger. All through him, we must celebrate and live out the fact that we are members of a kingdom family. It is all at the expense of our elder brother, Jesus. Do you live as if you're a member of God's family, accepted and loved? Remember, a child in a family obeys not in order to be loved and accepted, but because he already is loved and accepted. And J.I. Packer said these amazing words, Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. I thought that was amazing. See, Jesus shows up here in Mark 3, and he says, I'm the one who's come to bind the strong man. I don't know what these religious leaders must have been thinking. They, unlike us, really knew the Old Testament. They knew the Hebrew scriptures. They realized the audacity of what he's saying. Jesus is the mighty one who's come, and in preaching and in healing and casting out demons, he's defeating Satan. He's showing he's stronger than Satan. He's stronger than the forces of the world. He raises people from the dead. He's stronger than death. <coughs> he forgives people's sins. He's stronger than their evil. He touches the leper. He feeds people. He's stronger than the forces of evil in this world. And yet, <coughs> when he gets to the end of his life, his disciples see him bound. They see him getting plundered. They don't see him walk into a throne. They see him walk into a cross. And yet, that's the stunning triumph of the mighty one who is stronger than the strong man. What we see on the cross is the judge receiving judgment. What we see on the cross is the power and justice of God going into the divine sacrifice of God, receiving in himself the punishment we deserve, paying the penalty for our sins, not going to a throne, going to a cross. That's mightiness. That's the ultimate strength when the Lord of the universe is strong enough to be weak in order to pay the penalty for our sins so someday he can destroy evil without destroying us. That's the ultimate strength, the strength 
to be weak, the strength to forgive, the strength to be willing to suffer and die. And because of that, Jesus has forever changed what it means to defeat evil. And he did it for you. Think about that. You should pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Thank you that you have given us a King, your Son, our Savior. Lord, when we look at ourselves, we see not just conflict and confusion and stress and poor communication, we see sin. We know that in Jesus there was no sin, yet how grateful we are that in his family. There were still strained relationships as his brothers and mother didn't believe, didn't trust, didn't want him to keep going on. We're grateful that when we cry out in our confusion and need, wondering what to do next, how to care for troubled teenagers, what to do with our children, how to love and pray for an angry spouse, we have one who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, who hears our cries, who's been touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And as we come to him, we pray that you would cause the family resemblance to begin to show forth from us, that we would be more like our Savior and grant to us the great joy in finding in one another true family. Father, forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being afraid to admit our sins and blasphemies. The truth is, all of us badly need your forgiving grace. So we thank you for Jesus, the stronger than the strong man, who sets the prisoners free, who came to wash us clean and to forgive us. And we pray for one another, for ourselves, that we would run to the only safe harbor as we hear Jesus sound the alarm and tell us of the great danger of unbelief. Grant that none of us may so stray, so rebel, become so hardened in our rejection of Christ that we pass the point of recovery. Instead, today, here and now, grant that we, that all of us, may come to him seeking the forgiveness we so desperately need. Thank you for the glimpses we get of Jesus and his grace towards sinners like us. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and in your word and in this gospel to draw us ever closer to your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Receive God's blessing. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God bless you. We'll see you next week.